episode 26 of Operator Syndrome. Uh, last episode, Steve had just graduated Sephardic. Um, and we're going to talk more about what happened after that uh, when you were, as you were assigned to the training department after two deployments, including Desert Storm. We got a few admin notes Steve's going to cover. Yeah, we'd like to just say that we've, uh, we, it's been brought to our attention that people uh, might have um, questions uh, of us. In fact, we've already received some of those that we're going to be addressing. They're very good questions and um, tying right into kind of our bigger theme of, you know, the trauma that that is a result of, of combat and, and special operations. Um, so we have an email. We've established an email account. We'd love to hear from you. Um, you know, it's called, it, the email is Operator Syndrome Podcast, all one word operator syndrome singular podcast at gmail.com so um let us know um in anything really um questions topics you'd like us to talk about stuff to delve into uh, i'll just as a teaser one of the questions i got from one of our listeners was if your son wanted you to be like dad and go into special ops special operations what would you say to him um, that's a great question. And so we're going to be delving into a few of these initial questions coming coming up in a, in a, in a few episodes. Um, but in the meantime, you have access to us through Operator Syndrome Podcast at gmail.com. And um, we'd entertain any and all of your thoughts. Uh, we, uh, we appreciate our listeners and we certainly want to scratch where if there's a certain itch that we're not hitting um, and we're open. This is a broad podcast and uh, so we'd love to hear from you. Okay. Yeah, looking forward. And if you all have stories, um, if, if there are moments where um, you're interested in our perspective, maybe we, we, we're folks who, who you think might be able to lend um, an informed ear to a situation you may have ever faced. I think that's something we're open to hearing from too. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, but back, back to the topic for today is... Um, continuing on with your timeline, uh, you graduate Sephardic, you leave Army land, you get to go back to sunny California, uh, and you're in the training department. Um, yeah. So you come back and you've got the Sephardic cred. Um, I think maybe we talked about this last time, but that, that, that did carry some weight when you came back? Yeah, it did. It did. As I said, um, with the guys in training who really knew that, that and some of these guys had already been teaching um, close quarters battle CQB, um, you know, that school is pretty high watermark uh, to, to get it. And man, honestly, I think there might've been only four or five people from our team to ever go to that school and complete it. And that's over the course of probably six, seven years. So uh, yeah, it was, it was a big feather in the cap and the leadership really, got it because they saw bigger picture and um and i and i did realize when i came back because i i kind of alluded to this last episode you know they they made me for the final training exercise which is the big deal it's the the big final thing uh, of the course they made me a ground force commander which to me was kind of shocking as an e5 uh i wasn't used to that but then i saw the logic when i got back into training because I was having to train entire platoons. So I'm training the platoon commander as well as the assistant platoon commander, the chief, everybody else. So now I did, it kind of did click later that, oh, well, yeah, it was important that I was a ground force commander because 
I'm, I'm in training department, be it, albeit enlisted, but I still have to train officers because um, that's that's a seal thing that goes way back into buds. You know, these the main the main instructors are enlisted and they're training the officers as well as the enlisted are right by our side. Mm-hmm. And that was kind of similar to Ranger School. It was kind of, hey, we're all in it. To, you know, it doesn't matter. Your rank is kind of suspended while we're in the school. Right. So, yeah, I thought that was um, was 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 a good takeaway. So, yeah, I got back um, was assigned. I my now a training department at a SEAL team does many things. There's the diving department phase, doing combat swimmer attacks. Now, a lot of times they blend because, for example, you've got diving experts, and I was never a diving expert. I'm an expert diver, but I'm not an expert trainer. I don't know the rigs. I don't know how to do all the maintenance, all that. And they're pretty complicated. There's about three different types of rigs. But where I would kick in along with the diving people would be, okay, so we would do, say, um, an FTX in, in in a combat swimmer course might be usually one of two or three scenarios. One would be, swimming in and planting limpet mines, magnetic mines on, on a ship to either sink it or disable it or both um, an enemy ship that would be. And um, I, I could tell you some funny stories. We had the explosive ordnance disposal, the Navy's explosive ordnance disposal unit trained dolphins. Yes, the, the, the animal, the dolphin to hunt down enemy swimmers. This is just a funny aside. It didn't really have to do with what I did, but it was, they would put harnesses on these dolphins that had harpoons, like CO2 harpoons, and they could actually bump and spear an enemy swimmer. And and like if the Soviets were trying to attack our ships, they'd release these dolphins and they trained them to hunt down combat swimmers, enemy combat swimmers. But and they trained them. They had workers from like SeaWorld and stuff working with EOD. That I mean, that would that would kill that would kill a swimmer, right? Yes. I mean, it was. Yes, a, it would. I mean, that's how like probably, that's how they do. That's how they take out. Um, uh, and that's how they t- like no country for old men. Isn't that like yeah. how they take out like steer? Like yeah, that kind <laughs> of thing. It had it had an inflation device that would embolize somebody as it pulled you up to the surface it probably could kill you just depending on where you got hit with the co2 harpoon but also now you're on the surface and they're just going to gun you down from the ship so yeah it's not a good deal i I feel like i'd heard about the dolphins looking for mines and tagging them yeah and i feel like i'd heard that they had been trained to um spot divers and disrupt them i thought they would just run into them and then, they, and then, you know, I'm sure that would hurt if a dolphin ran into you. I didn't know that they were armed harnesses. And I think PETA has been up in arms about it. And hey, I'm, I'm not getting into that mess. But what I can tell you is there were certain nights where the EOD guys would say, hey, you guys are out on a combat swimmer training up. Can we practice with our dolphins on you? And some aspiring officer would say, oh, sure. Now, they didn't put the real deal on them. They put like these rubber harnesses that they would just bump us. But you want to talk about being scared out of your wetsuit? They came out of nowhere and they're fast. And it's like, was that a shark? What the heck? 
you know, you're trying to concentrate and these things, boom. And it's like, ah, need, I need a change of wetsuit. They're really scary and fast. And then they're it's pitch black, right? And we're never diving in the daytime when you can see something coming. So anyway, that was kind of a funny aside. Yeah, that's wild. Yeah, it's really wild. I'd, ne- I'd never heard about anything like that. I, I'm not, okay, this is back in the dark ages. I don't know if they still do that. I, I mean, back. They've back, got, la- I, they got laser beams now. Yeah, yeah, laser, that's right. You know, I'm so old that when, when we went through SEER school, which is called Survive, Escape, Resist, and Evade, did you guys go through that? Uh, you could opt to go to it. Oh, yeah, of, totally. It was one of our good deal schools. Yeah. I did not. Yeah, it was required for us. And uh, this is back in the day where they still waterboarded us. We got waterboarded, like real deal, choking, coughing, hacking. When when they decided to make that illegal for doing against terrorists, I guess they stopped doing it to us too. It's like, well, <laughs> you know, but it was like, this is old school, man. This is the back in the day. I mean, I'm not making that up. It was, I remember it and it was uncomfortable. Anyway. So there's a lot that may have changed, but um, back to shipboarding. So one of one of the three basic operations we would have against ships was to sink or disable it with bombs, basically, underneath it, underneath the hull. The other would be to board the ship and to either secure the bridge or depending on what kind of ship and how many enemy crew, all that. Um, and then the, the third would be to fast rope on top of a moving ship that had been taken by pirates and to secure the ship again kill the pirates secure the ship um and so those were our three basic uh, assault type of missions towards ships one was more of a direct action sinking and the others would be more assaulting and then the other waterborne operation that we did a lot of training on is to take oil rigs uh, a lot of times oil rigs would be problematic. They would be taken by pirate forces or enemy combatants. This they, We did some of this in the Gulf War. We, we took some oil rigs. My platoon did not. We were focused on other stuff, but, but some of them did. And that would be swimming in, putting up a, what's called a caving ladder. It's a narrow kind of ladder you climb. They use them in spelunking. That's why we call them caving ladders. They're, 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 they're wire. Like you can roll them up. And so they've got they've got these aluminum rungs not very big about like that and 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 um stainless steel cables going up and you just you climb you climb them you just run them up with like these telescoping poles hook them and um and climb so you would climb and and then from there once you got on the surface of an oil rig or a ship you assaulted and so that's where i came in on you know waterborne sort of assault type missions for ships and oil rigs so i had to overlap with the dive guys with the other departments there's medical training there's comms training there's mortar training i never got into mortars i didn't know anything about them and we really never even used mortars very much at all but we had to know kind of how they worked so i was assigned assault so it was the waterborne start type of assaults and then there were um hard target, we called them like on land buildings, whether they involved hostages or just high value targets. So we had to go in and clear the place and kill them or capture kill, we we call it now. So you had a responsibility to 
to um, maintain the proficiency to share the tactics, it sounds mm-hmm. like. Um, did you also, I'm trying to compare it to whenever someone in, a, in another unit might do time in like an S-shop training, training department. Did you also have the responsibility then of um, like the logistics for those events as well? I mean, was that, is that, was your, like your day-to-day job was preparing for these FTXs, FTXs, of course, being field training exercises for yeah. anyone who doesn't know. But right. I mean, was that, was that more or less your job? So it was, it was the logistics, the lead up, planning it, and then also maintaining that tactical proficiency and sharing that? Or was that someone else's job? Yeah, that's interesting. It, I only had to plan logistics for myself and any other training cadre I was taking with me. It was on the platoon to do, and we would say, this is the loadout you need, this is the gear, this is the op, and then they had to take care of you know, weapons, ammo, demo, uh, it depended on where we were training a lot of times. I mean, we had so many places we went around the country, at least the west side, you know, if, if now I didn't get into land warfare, which is your more of your fire and movement, your basic ambushes. I was more in the kill house than on the firing range, which so, yeah, it was on the platoons to do what you're talking about. And we would tell them, we'd give them lists. We had lists for like every, okay, we're going to Nyland. We're going to be working kill houses for the next week. You need this many rounds you need. And then their armorers in that platoon, every platoon had an armorer who took care of the weapons and, and, the, and the ammo and demo. And that was their job. And the parachute guys was like, well, our, our field training exercise is going to be jumping in and assaulting a target so you're gonna need parachutes you're gonna need rounds you're gonna need squares you're gonna need blah 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 blah, blah. So, so would you give a class or you or are you the evaluator or both both yeah both yeah. i'd be giving classes and i also did a lot of instruction on the shooting range like so there's the kill house once you get in the kill house that's like kind of the final phase because you're shooting you're moving you're doing jam drills, a jam drills where we would put like a dummy bullet. We would we would give them out magazines and we would know we well, we want one or two or three jams, see how they respond. So say if you're clearing and um and if you're not familiar with this world, you, your your primary weapon jams, you've got to sling it and pull your secondary and continue to engage until you have a moment where you can clear the jam and get back to your primary. But if it's in the middle of clearing a room, you just got to sling it and grab your secondary so you can at least hopefully engage or have some sort of a firing device that's up and running. Um, so there's stuff like that. But we had to work all that out on the shooting range first. So we had all kinds of drills, like jam drills. Um, sometimes we would try to we would try to make it impromptu where guys didn't know it was coming and that that's when we would put it like a dummy round in the middle of their magazine and say you may get a jam you may not but we're going to see how you respond other times we would start out slow like i would do whistle drills like i'd have a whistle in my mouth and we're i'd have two guys on each flank and i'd be kind of in the middle of the range calling out what we're doing and we're moving we're, we're moving engaging targets now blow the whistle, which means transition to your secondary. So everybody would do that all at once, which was a SIG P226 is what we used in, in my day. It was a nine millimeter. And we were using still MP5s for the most part. 
although I was making a case for 556 from the last episode. Well, one, one time we were at a desert shooting range and um, there, there was a, a, a chief who, uh, he, it, it, man, it, it's so stressful. Like I say, I, I look back at me doing this in my 20s and I guess I can't, who put this knucklehead in charge? And really dangerous because transitioning weapons and taking safeties off and engaging with live rounds, I mean, it's no joke. I mean, obviously it's no joke, but it's really kind of hairy sometimes. So I'm always watching for what's called safety violations. Do you all call them that in the army? Yeah. Safety violations. Safety violations where somebody does something really, and you can be disqualified. You can be failed out of a course and even out of a platoon for too many safety violations. Right. That that'll a safety violation has can and has gotten people kicked out of the range regiment. That's a com. that's a relatively common, uh, releasable offense right and and it's also gotten guys kicked out of the seal team so we had a guy a sniper who had an accidental discharge in in the armory indoors with a sniper rifle that was it he was out <laughs> and yeah. uh, probably a good move that's a real big no-no but anyhow um yeah accidental discharges are usually safety violations now maybe not in every case there may be something where the gun did something weird but most 99 times out of 100 it's not the weapon's fault it's the operator so this one particular individual we were practicing jam drills securing the submachine gun the mp5 transitioning to the nine millimeter engaging and then re-decocking continuing to move continuing to walk decocking reholstering and then pulling the primary and clearing it while still walking right it's a lot of moving parts and honestly i've always liked 1911 45s and glocks because they don't have all these decocking systems and extra safeties when you're using them every day you get used to it but man i still now get confused just give me a glock because i know with a glock for example or 1911 there's one condition it's in finger on the trigger. It's going off. Right. I don't have to think about all these different things. You know what I mean? Yeah. Decocking is terror. It's terrifying. I mean, yeah. that, it's, it's, it's like the thing's going off. Yeah. It's but it terrifying. doesn't. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. And, and, it's supposed to, but it doesn't like. Yeah. Yeah. It, it I always kind of wince when I decock. I'm like, Cause this is the time where it's really going to go off. Right. But, um, it's without going into the systems of like Berettas and, and, uh, SIGs it's, but when you decock, it must be in a safe direction. You don't want to be decocking as you're reholstering. That's no, that's a no, no. So this, this, this particular chief, we were, we were on the range and he had done that. I saw it. He was decocking as it was going into his holster and I blew the whistle. I said, ceasefire. I said, chief, you decock. I watched it go into your holster and that you're going to blow your leg off doing that. And he was kind of, see, here's where I, I mentioned in the previous episode, you know, I'm back from the Gulf war. I'm like, I'm, I'm, I'm junior. I'm like two ranks. I think he might've been a senior chief actually three ranks below this guy. And he's been in the teams a lot longer than I have but was not as proficient, you know, and I had to say to a senior person and I, I wasn't 
chewing them out like in buds or something. I was just like, hey, chief, if you if one more time and it's a safety violation, I'm pull you off the range because I don't want him to get hurt. Right. Or anybody else to get hurt. And he was just like, he got all prickly with me, like, oh, you know, I'm a chief. Blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, well, my job is to keep the range safe. And I saw you do something very dangerous. So he he did it a second time. And I blew the whistle. I said, that's it. You're coming off the range. Well, he got pissy again and and um, got talked to his officer. And one thing led to another. And I, they talked me into giving him a third shot. And I'm like, okay, this is not on me at this point. And he did it a third time. And I, I was watching him I was almost laser locked on him. I had some other guys helping me on the range watching guys. And I seen the, the pistol go right down into his holster. I see. I was like, and then he just crumples. He had shot himself right in the calf. And I, okay. Ceasefire medic. Here we go. By God's grace. He, he didn't permanently disable himself. I mean, we rushed him to Belleville as fast as we could. We, he was all right. Um, the the medic was top notch. Bernie's his name. Bernie, if you're out there, kudos on that day. We'll never forget that one. He did all the right stuff and stabilized him. But uh, it was just a lot of stuff like that that was just really the part I didn't enjoy about training department. I enjoyed a lot of it, but stuff like that was really crazy. It's, in, it's interesting for us in the army again. Back in the aughts, in my time, could have changed afterwards. But the training, you know, that that crawl, walk, run training um, was really it was it, you had the support of the battalion. So the higher unit would have would do a lot of the, the, the bigger logistical training, like getting the range, getting your ammo, that type of stuff. Um, the platoon leadership had the responsibility of get everyone together. Right. Uh, equipment, all that type of stuff was the same. But in terms of, of the evaluation during our workup if you will, our training cycle, it was really, if I'm remembering it right, it was always depending on the level of the training. So if it was like a team event, your platoon leadership would be the ones, would be the ones evaluating you, training and evaluating you, your, your own, your, your own direct leadership would train you. So let's say you're doing a shoot house, you're doing a shoot house, but it's, it's like a team shoot house event. Well, your team leader and your squad leader, they're the ones training you. And then you're evaluated by your platoon leader and your platoon sergeant. And then if you, and then mm. if you do, and then as you work up, they add on the layer up. But I don't remember there being like our training folks were mostly logistical. They were not tactical subject matter experts necessarily. Right. They were more for laying on the range and hey, you guys got everything you need. And it was really upon the leadership, the the direct chain of leadership, chain of command. To, to to do the to do the training and evaluation so that's one area where it seems like it's it's different yeah. like if we were on a range it, it would just be we wouldn't have a, a third party there right uh, watching us evaluating us only for big events big mm -hmm. the, the biggest events would you have observer controllers whatever you want to call them evaluators who could be some nc some senior nco from the battalion or, or regiment or whatever so that's that's one area where it's a little bit different so interesting that is a bit different i will say once you deployed um and you're like say in the philippines this happened a couple times once you get down range 
you, there is no more training department. It is. It then becomes the platoon commander's responsibility to oversee and evaluate it on, on some level. Um, mm -hmm. but, right. but yeah, but when we were in CONUS doing workups, it was the training department. And we, we basically, the platoon commander had the responsibility of seeing who's talented at what and who's going to be in first squad, who's going to be in second squad, who's going to be my hotshot this or that sniper. But the training department was like pass fail as a platoon. You, mm -hmm. you, you've got to do this again and prove better proficiency, or you've got to do some remedial work because mm -hmm. you're not ready. And, and it was, it was, it was actually the training officer who fi finally signed off on it, but it was all of us mid-level enlisted who were doing the, okay, these guys, they're, they're looking a little weak here. They need a little more time on the range here. So, yeah. Yeah. So, um, that uh, that time at the range was not the only accident that you were uh, an observer no. of or a party to, if you will. Um, what no. else? What else went down? Yeah, the worst the worst worst thing I saw when I was in training department was it was an it was an air operation. There were there there was a platoon doing a workup called Golf Platoon. And they had a sister platoon. I can't remember which one that was, but there were a lot of new guys in that platoon. I mean, at least 10 or more new guys. I can't remember exactly. They had all just can't come from Benning and were. And so in the Navy and the Marine Corps, we have we when when you graduate from Fort Benning, you get basic airborne wings, which were, we call them the lead sled. It's it's the the basic airborne wings. I don't know what else to call them. They're a it's a classic look. It's a yeah. it's a retro look. It's what you wore on your hat, <laughs> Patrick. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you, yeah, it's what yeah. I, yeah, it's what I wore on my Braves cap. No man, I was so proud to get them. I mean, that was another thing to put on my uniform and say, "Look at this." That's right. But but uh, no, you, yeah. But in the Marine Corps and the Navy, if that okay, you have to have five successful jumps to to graduate and then you get your 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 basic airborne wings well the first thing we want to do as seals is get bigger bling on our uniform among other things actually jumping became fun it, it really did if you're doing it right um i i, I actually eventually enjoyed jumping uh, unlike patrick because he had a lot of round parachute combat equipment loads which that is not fun but other ways to jump can be fun uh, so the first thing guys want to do is get that. So in the Navy and Marine Corps, if you get 10 or more jumps, you get what's called Navy Marine Corps parachutist wings and they're gold and they, they kind of look cooler. They almost look like flight wings or something, right? It, like pilot wings, but right. they're, they're cool looking and they're gold. Uh, so that sticks out. Um, so we had a lot of times where we had a day where, okay, we have an air asset over here. You have a C-130 or we have a Chinook or something that's just going to take us up and do what we call elevator rides. Take us up, we jump. Repack, or we, in this case, we would have a bunch of chutes ready. They wouldn't, we, they couldn't repack their own rounds. Um, guys could pack their own, repack their own squares. In fact, you had to if you're free falling. But um and so we had a day where they were going to try to get all five jumps in and, I, and, and get their gold wings and then go out to McPee's and talk about how cool they are. Cause now they got their gold wings. but these are new guys. They're brand new. They're all full of adrenaline and testosterone, 
not a particularly good combination. And um, I had to give the jump brief. Um, I was working in assaults, but for whatever reason that day they said, hey, Watkins, can you do the jump brief for these guys? They're going to go out. And I'm like, sure, I've done a million of them. Let's go. Now, I stayed back because I had other stuff I had to do in training. There was another jump master who was going to put them out of the plane and they had a whole dz crew drop zone crew who was going to do the setting up of the t and the wind and all that um but i i somebody had to give them their safety brief so i did and i could tell just right away i'm like okay i took them serious i always took the safety brief serious for what appeared to me to be obvious reasons I'm like, okay, guys, let's go. And they were kind of, they were cocky as hell. And just, you could see they were ah, joking with each other. And I'm like, guys, I know this sounds like a bunch of ridiculous stuff, but I, there are a couple of really important points I want to make. I'll go over the stuff that really doesn't matter, like aircraft, aircraft emergency. You're going to hear three loud rings on the, uh, in the plane. You're not going to really do much about that. It's going to be up to the pilots. But but here's what's really important. And I said, I cut to the chase. And one, one there are several things that are really important. And I think one of the most, and Patrick would know this, is called alti alti um, altitude awareness, basic awareness of where everybody is when you're coming down. So you, they're jumping, you know, 8, 10, 12 guys, right? Because if you come out of the plane at different, one person jumps, another person jumps, another person jumps. So your first guy's the lowest, your second guy's the second, and so forth. Well, with a round parachute, it's really important that you don't see here's here's a parachute. Here's the low parachute. It's really important that the higher parachute doesn't cross over the lower parachute, because what happens is it's creating a vortex and it's sucking the air, creating a twisty vacuum that can cause the top one to collapse and if you're close enough the, bo the, the bottom one the bottom the one bo right? the bottom one causes right. the top one to collapse yeah right. because yeah. it's stealing the air we call it stealing the air right you know it's it's creating this draft this overflow that it can't right. maintain that tension so whatever you do the top the higher jumper the lower jumper always has the right-of-way because a lower jumper can't see above his, his own canopy. So, but, but a higher jumper can always see the lower jumper and you've got to always be doing this. And it's a lot of things to keep together at once. Like where's my end of the wind? Where's the DZ? Where am I going? And you can steer them a little bit, <laughs> um, but you've got to make sure you don't cross over directly over a guy below you because it can steal the air, cause the canopy to collapse and you can you'll plummet well and if you're high enough that might not be a bad thing because you kind of bounce off the canopy and float off and it reinflates that has happened i've seen i've seen guys walk off the top of canopies before which is weird but it, it, you know you don't want to mess around that's and i was trying to get this point across and i, I could tell they were just kind of blowing it off uh, uh, several of them were really serious and dialed in a couple of them were just like, ha, ha we got this. Yeah, we just came back from Benning. Like, well, okay. Anyhow, so right before they departed for the jump, I said, guys, I want to ask you one more question. What's the most important thing out there today? And I think one or two of them said exactly. I, I just let it hang for a second because I saw a couple of them. I, 
I, I don't think they heard me. And a couple of the ones that were paying attention said altitude awareness, low man has the right away. Like, okay, I said it three times and that's all I can do. Good luck. Have, have a fun time, but be safe. And um, they're off. So I go back to my desk in training department and getting ready for something. I don't know what. And, um, you know, a few hours later, we get a call. I get a call from the training officer. And he said, hey, come into my office. And I said, oh, I get this sinking feeling in my stomach because I'm like, yes, sir. He goes, there's been a real bad mishap on the DZ. And I'm like, you know, what? What was it? He said, apparently, they're rushing him to Balboa. That's our medical center. He uh, crossed, he, he lost his awareness, crossed over a low jumper at about 250 feet above the ground. Okay, so you know the deal. His uh, parachute collapsed. He went plummeting down, broke his spine, and uh, ended up uh, paraplegic for the rest of his life in fact i saw an, an advertisement i was in a b-dubs of all places having some lunch and he's his name is al kovac he was on he's doing um a uh i, I want to contact him i've got to find his organization he's doing a a, a a military benefit for disabled uh vets and and so forth um, but this guy had he was one of the top swimmers. He had swim times in the Olympic brackets and a great guy, just a really lovable guy. Um, I don't know what, I don't know how I went to see him and met his parents in the hospital and, um, but just so tragic that just like 10 seconds of loss of focus could, could result in that. So what that eventually led to, and I think we're, we're, Oh, we're running down on time here is that, um, in a future episode, I'll talk about um, how how that impacted my stint with training department. Well, um, you and I know, but other people might not know that uh, you know in special operations and airborne units, uh, you know, if you're in a, on a tank crew, being in the military is a dangerous job, and most of the time, it's not the enemy that gets us; it's yeah. uh, mishaps, accidents, um, negligence that happening when you're in training. So exactly. um, I got stories like that too, um, but we'll, we'll follow up in future episodes. Thanks for listening. We'll catch you all next time.